You can open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I'll also have it in the text. If you just have your phone, you can just uh, Google Ephesians 4 NIV. That's the version of the Bible I'll be using and to follow along. You know, all of us know someone who used to be, used to be part of a, uh, our community, used to be at Montana State, and used to be in a church. There's a new book that's come out called Dechurching, which has uh, traced the 40 million Americans that have stopped going to church in the last 25 years. That's 12% of our population. It is the fastest change in religious demographics in the history of the United States. But the evangelicals, the ones who are us who have stopped attending church, wouldn't say they're not evangelicals anymore. They still would say they believe of the gospel, they say they've had an encounter with Christ, they would say the Bible is the word of God, they just do not go to a church. They would even self-identify as an evangelical. So if you did a poll on, say, politics, you say, what do the evangelicals believe? Well, the evangelicals would be anyone who says, I am an evangelical, and majority of them do not go to a church anywhere. I was reading one commentator on the data who said this, what if the problem with the de-churched evangelicals is not their faulty understanding of faith, but rather evangelicals' theology own lack of emphasis on the church? He goes on to say, to get people to return, evangelicals need to re- rediscover a unique answer to the question, why come? The culture we live in is not set up for community life. It's designed to drive you to pursue personal achievement above all else, whether that's for school or profession. And that leaves little time for any type of community that doesn't contribute to your success or if you have kids, your kids' future success. I mean, despite great flexibility, we are addicted to work and recreation and youth sports control American families. And so a religious community, whether that's Christian or anything, is a calendar problem. American evangelicalism, that's what we are, was founded as a reaction against unconverted pastors. It was was a reaction against dead churches. And so we have a rather low view of church as compared to a very high view of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, my guess is if I went around and heard many of the stories, and I, I mean, I'm cherry picking, I've heard a lot of your stories, Many of them would be something like this. I came to Christ. There was a lot of talk about Jesus. There was zero talk about the church. In fact, I came to Christ despite the church. Let me just share with you on a personal level. I grew up going to a liberal United Methodist church. My wife grew up in a Catholic church. And I think both of us would summarize those those experiences from a child perspective as dead. We had similar experiences. My family would go to the 845 service, which I thought was just, I mean, crazy. Who gets up that early? But we would go every Sunday. And then I would go to Sunday school. And that was great because the guy was actually a Christian. But I didn't really know any other Christians. I remember growing up at church, so happy to escape out of that place. And I went to college. And in college, I found this campus ministry. And man, it was alive. It was dynamic. There was two, three hundred of us. We're in Bible studies. We're leading worship ourselves. We're making our own decisions. 
I mean, my life didn't change much, but I was so drawn in by the friendship, so drawn in by the dynamics. And then my sophomore year, so now it's been a year of this, I got invited to a church. And I was like, wait, what? I had to go to church? And so I went, and it was a Southern Baptist church in Virginia. It was, it was Southern. The pastor had manicured hands. I mean, it was crazy. You know, like they had like a king's chair on the table. You know what I'm talking about, this kind of church? Okay, some of you have been. I got invited to start teaching Sunday school. And so what I would do is I would go to the youth Sunday school, I would teach it, and I would drive home. Because the adult church wasn't for me, I had campus ministry. Anyone ever had that experience? I graduate college, I go to a discipleship and leadership program, a Christian one, and guess what? None of the people in the ministry go to church. Why? They, have, they don't need a church, they're in ministry. The church, in my experience, was always in the way. It wasn't efficient. In fact, I went to seminary, and, saw, and I remember thinking this, why would anyone want to work in a church only the people who are not gifted end up in a church because that's not where the real work is. The words church is, was almost always presented as what the opposite of what Jesus wanted. It was as if Jesus was preoccupied with creating a movement against the church. And so you would read the New Testament, you read stories about the Pharisees, the foil of Jesus, and you would say, oh, that's the church. The Pharisees are the church those religious leaders. And so to set up a ministry apart from a church in any way, in my mind, was what was faithful. And so I floated. I floated. And I had no real community. And it harmed me. And I share that experience just to say, do you know what I'm talking about? Does that sound familiar to anybody? We've been talking about the core doctrines of the Christian faith. God his son Jesus, the Spirit. I left for the Holy Spirit, so I didn't have to deal with that. Uh, the Bible, the incarnation, salvation, and now where are we? The church. Now, you may find that to be strange in a series on the basics of the Christian faith, but some of you grew up in churches that recited the Apostles' Creed, and what's the line in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's not Roman Catholic. Catholic just means universal. I'll just say that. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to show you this morning from Ephesians 4. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live a life in following Christ? This is the Apostle Paul writing. This is the guy. Uh, now the book of Acts is over. He's, write, he's writing from prison back uh, to his the people he loves in Ephesus. This is a letter, uh, if you've read it, this is like the Cliff Notes version of Romans. So, and it's structured like Romans. Romans is Paul's kind of long letter, describes Christian theology, magnum opus. Romans 1 through 11, theology. Romans 12 through 16, application. Ephesians 1 through 3, uh, esoteric kind of theology. Ephesians 4 through 6, application, application, application. It's, it's the same outline. And it turns on the application of what does it mean to be part of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4. So, one, what is a Christian? I'm going to skip around a little bit. Here's verse 4 through 6. Some scholars think that this is a hymn. 
or a creed. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, which you were called to, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you notice some maybe repetition? The word one appears seven times. You also might notice these three words, Father, Lord, Spirit. In fact, if, if you want to underline anything, there it is right there. Father, Lord, Spirit. In Christian circles, we'd call this explicit Trinitarian theology. Let's go through each one. The first one, God the Father, who is over all things. Look what the text says, in ver- in, again, in verse 4. Over all, through all, in all, he rules all things, he made all things. That is, God's activity permeates the entire universe. What Isaiah 40 says, who has looked at the waters of the earth and scooped them up like we scoop water out of a stream? Who has looked up at the universe and marked it out like this with his hand? Who does that? God does that. Who rules everything? Who is in everything? Who is over everything? God. That's right. I forgot you're here. Sorry, bud. (laughs) This is the God you believe. And he is revealed to himself as Father. As Father. There is one Lord. The Lord is Jesus, who died and rose, who gives you eternal life to escape the judgment you deserve. Paul will say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many of you came to Christ because someone shared that verse with you? I mean, if you're in crew, there you go. That's the Romans road. This is the last step. Jesus knows you. This is good news. Maybe not for everyone, but he knows you. He knows everything that has played out in your life. He knows everything that will play out in your life. He says to me, to those who are tired, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He says to those who are hurt others, come. He says to those who hurt themselves, who record in their mind self-condemnation over and over again, there is no condemnation for those who know me. And so you trust Jesus. That's what faith is, the one faith. You trust him. He's the Lord. He's resurrected. And that resurrection demands a response. Like, he either resurrected or he didn't. If he didn't, let's just go eat ice cream sandwiches down in the West Wing and call it a day. Because what are we doing here if he's dead? But if he's alive, then he demands response. And so you center your life on him. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the one who loves you. And it changes you. It changes your heart. It changes your affections. It changes your mind. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said conversion for him was like his heart was strangely warmed. Like something just happened to him. You know, as as I've reflected on even my own story of coming to Christ, I used to share it one way. Because I didn't even know really what happened. And now as years pass, I kind of shared another way. Like, what ha- I just think to myself, what happened? You know, how many freshmen are coming into MSU this year with plans? And a year from now, we're just going to say, what, what happened to me? And their parents are going to say, what happened to you? Jesus happened. There's one hope that he will rescue us from. That he's called us, called us into action. You have been given one spirit, the spirit who seals you, who protects you, who helps you. He's called our helper. Like, this is the power of God inside of you. When people say, I can't change, I'm like, are you a Christian? 
You have the power of God residing inside of you. Of course you can change. Notice that one body and one spirit are together. Why? I think it's because Paul will say in other places it's the spirit that creates the body of Christ. Here's one example in 1 Corinthians 12. Another letter Paul wrote, just as a body, so the body is Christian believers, though one has many parts, it all has parts that form as one body, so it is with Christ, for we have all been baptized by one spirit, just leave alone some of that stuff if you've been a Christian for a while, so that as to form one body. The body is just a metaphor for the church. It's called the bride of Christ. It's called the temple of God. It's called the household of God. It's called the people of God. Paul uses all of these on purpose, and the one in this section is to emphasize the unity that we have with other people, which we'll get to in a second. But it's the spirit. It's the spirit that does that. Not only has he, is he in me, indwells me, he actually creates this. This has not been created by us. It's been created by the spirit of God. We would not know each other if it was not for the spirit. And one baptism that command of Jesus, that initiation right. It's like putting on team colors. It's saying, I'm, I'm part of this group. It's publicly saying, I'm part of the community of faith. I mean, in the, in, in the first century, and I think just generally in church history, if someone said, uh, you know, when did you become a Christian? People would say, well, I got baptized on this day. Like they, they would combine it, not because the water's magical or anything, because that's the day that I identified publicly that I am in the community of faith. Now, you may have heard something like, you know, baptism is a personal decision in which you make a public declaration of your faith. That's all true. But and when, I, when I decided, okay, man, Jesus commands baptism, I need to be baptized. I got baptized like the next day. But listen, it's also someone who's baptizing you, who's affirming you, who's saying, I think that you are part of the body of Christ. That's what the church does. It's an affirmation tool. So, do you believe those seven one statements? Seven one statements. This, I gotta, I gotta remember. Rhetorical questions don't work anymore. <laughs> this, is, this is the creed of a Christian. That, that you say, what does a Christian believe? I believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, in all, above all. I believe in one hope. I believe in one spirit. That's the faith. So, Next, gifts are given, verse 7 through 13. So now what? You become a Christian, what's supposed to happen now? We're all, verse 7, we're all given grace. Now, grace in this passage refers to gifts. And so the picture here is that Jesus is out here going, and you get a gift, and you get a gift, and you get a gift, and you get a gift. And why can he do that? Because he's a conquering king, he has conquered death, he's defeated all the enemies, he's suppressed all of them, and he takes all the spoils for more, and he says, here you go, here you go, here you go, they're for you. Now, this is a, a different uh, way of thinking about gifting than maybe our culture thinks about it. Our, our culture says your gifting is for your own self-expression and for your kind of attainment of success. Gifting is to serve myself. It's for my benefit and my advancement. If people are helped by my advancement, great. But that's not important. What's important is these are, this is who I am. I'm gifted to do this, and I'm going to take what is mine. But the Christian says, God has given me his grace. Why do you think gifts are called grace? Unmerited? You didn't earn them? They don't belong to you? 
they are given to you for the sake of other people. Not for personal advancement. It's not about what other people's gifts are. It's not about jealousy. These gifts are for you to help other people. Here's, here's Peter's words. Remember Peter who was with Jesus? Here, here's his letter uh, years later, many years later. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to why? To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? To serve other people. What's the end goal? That God would be praised. Is it for personal attainment so people may recognize me? Or how about Paul in his letter to the Corinthians? Again, this is body language in 1 Corinthians 12, similar to Ephesians. Now if the foot should say, you guys know this passage if you've been a believer, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not be for that reason to stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not be that reason to stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, man, word picture, where would any sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, would, would any sense of smell be? But if, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, and there, are, there is one body. This is about what people do when they take their ball and go home instead of being part of the body of Christ. An individual goes out on their own like a foot, hopping around. They don't get anything done. And you know what? If the foot leaves, you harm everybody else. Where are we going to go without you? You're a foot. So in isolation, you hurt yourself. You hurt yourself because you have all these other giftings around you to serve you, and yet you also hurt everyone else because you rob them of the benefit of your gift. And we miss out. Imagine, you know, being on the football team and all of a sudden, for example, the long snapper says, uh, I don't matter. No one likes me. I'm going home. What would happen? Chaos. Chaos would erupt. And you know what? There was a game last year when the long snapper of another team didn't show up and chaos erupted. C.S. Lewis has a chapter on friendship that has helped me see this, uh, how we rob other people by withholding uh, gifts from them. He's commenting on the loss of his friend, Charles Williams, who's died. And he's talking about Charles Ronald, who's J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and himself. In each of my friends, he says, there is something that some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need other lights than my own to show all facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less. You see that? If you bury how God has made you, you rob me personally of knowing other people in their relationship to you. 
You rob me of what God needs to bring out of me that only you can if you decide to take your ball and go home. If you're a musician and you're hiding, you rob the church. If you're a good listener and you're hiding because your calendar's full, you rob the church. If you're an organizer or you're a teacher or you're a giver or you're an encourager or you're just a servant and you take your ball and go home, you, ro you rob the church. You actually harm the body of Christ because God has gifted you for my sake, for me. Look at verse 11 and 12. There are specific offices now listed, apostle, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now, all of these roles are unique to the body of Christ. You know, you don't, you don't get this kind of just floating around and making your own body. There's, there's very uh, kind of a specific list here. Apostles, which don't exist anymore. Evangelists, there are some of you in this room. You've been texting me this week. Pastors and teachers, that's me. And what's my role? You know, in verse 7, the role is everyone's given a gift for the body of Christ. Verse 11 and 12 now, there are different roles in the offices and the charge is to me to equip you. That's, guess what? Surprise, I'm doing it right now. I'm teaching you. That's what I do when I meet with people. And why do we do it? Verse 12, so that we will be built up. That's my job, build you up. So everyone's given a gift, but not to the point where it doesn't need help. Do you understand that? So you're given a gift, but that doesn't mean it's fully formed. It doesn't mean it's a perfect gift, like you're the perfect manifestation of servanthood. No, never. And so the pastor comes alongside and says, let me equip that gift you want to be a giver and you're super generous? Okay, listen, you're not generous enough. Here, I'm going to equip you to be more generous. You're an evangelist. You feel gifted to do it. Okay, I'm going to equip you to do that. On and on we go. So you see the dynamic, right? Here, you have the evangelists that bring in the people. They lead them to Christ. Some of you are in this room. You're just leading people to Christ left and right. And then you bring them to the pastors and teachers, and the pastors and teachers equip everyone, and everyone is just pouring their gifts out on everyone nonstop. Super dynamic. That's what it should be. You might ask, well, how do I figure this out? What, what are the gifts? I don't want to get into this because this is like, I've seen people do five sermons on this. Listen, very little in the Bible is said about how to discover your gifts. And when I mean very little, I mean nothing. And so people create these like inventories of spiritual gifts and check the boxes. And I'm just going to say that those are mostly unhelpful. And they're mostly unhelpful because they're created in isolation apart from the community of faith. So if you want to find your gift, here's the clue. Go just serve and then let the community of faith tell you, oh yeah, you're gifted that way. I mean, how many personality tests did I take in my teens and 20s that told me what I wanted to be? and not what I was. I need other people to help discover who I am. So just serve. Okay, so you become a Christian, you're given gifts. Now the why. This is where I, this is, I want to sear this section into your mind, verse 14 through 16. The body of Christ needs a lot of work. So why, what, you become a Christian, you're given gifts. Now what are you supposed to do? Well, notice at the very beginning, verse 14, the minute you become a Christian, you're an infant. You're saved in the infancy. So spiritually speaking, you come to Christ, immediately a baby. And some of you are there right now. Some of you are merging out of that. Some of you shouldn't be there anymore, and you are. But notice it's a we statement. We won't be infants. And I'm like, Paul, 
if Paul is a toddler, what does that make us? You know, like, Paul, we will, will no longer be infants. But you know what also it means? It means that you can let the go of the dream of the perfect church. Verse 14, then you will no longer be infants. It means that the church will always be filled, if you've got evangelists, spiritually speaking, with infants. Now, I heard a pastor commenting on this once say, you know what that really means? It means the church will be filled with poopy diapers. <laughs> now, you just picture that for five seconds. You want to be part of an alive church, a church where God, spirit is saving people, spiritually speaking, then you're going to be a church of poopy diapers. It just will save you from the uh, belief that, oh, man, I can't believe the church does this. I can't believe Christians do this. I'm just like, why, do you, why are you surprised? We're infants. And we have a few infants around right now, like 20. And if you walk down the nursery, there's some kind of scent killer down there. And being around them, it kind of reminds me what they're like. What are they like? Here's what they are. First, verse one th why do you think verse 1 through 3 exists? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Why does Paul say that? Because infants aren't patient. Infants bear with no one. Infants bend the will of every adult around them to get whatever they want. You know what I'm talking about. They don't care. No one's mad that they don't care. Everyone knows they don't care. They're like, oh, cute kid. So... The same is true with spiritual infants. They love themselves. They just do. Second, look at verse 14. Infants are tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. An infant, spiritually speaking, is not discerning. So if I went down to the infant room and had mushed carrots and a marble and handed it to the babies, you'd arrest me first. But the second thing that would happen is the baby wouldn't know. Wouldn't know what food is. A baby Christian can't discern anything. And so if you find yourself, I walked with Christ a long time, I can't discern anything, then you're still an infant. You're tossed to and fro. You ever been out on a lake and been tossed around by waves? It's not fun. Totally in, not in control. So one way to gauge your spiritual maturity is to gauge whether you are rooted so much in God's word that when waves come and wind comes, you're just... You're just there. Remember Psalm 1? Blessed is a man who is like a person who meditates on God's word, meditates day and night. Verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whatever its, uh, its leaves. Wait a second. And whose leaf does not wither, whatever it does prospers. It means you, uh, you prosper like a tree. You go through hard, barren times. You're not dying. Your roots are going down deeper. You've seen some of the trees after this winter. They're terrible. The roots are going down. You can't see the fruit. But one day the branches will be bigger and they'll be able to carry more fruit on it. You know people who have suffered, whose branches are thicker, whose roots are deeper because they're so rooted on this that when the barren times came, they stood. They were mature. They made it. We don't want to be an infant forever, right? The author of Hebrews 
talks about infancy too. Although some of you ought to be teachers, you need to be retaught the basic principles of God's word over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, there it is, is not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature. Same words. Good news. Paul tells you how to grow up. Here it is. The word mature appears multiple times. So you become a Christian, you're giving gifts, you want to grow up. Here it is. So that the body of Christ may be built up, verse 12 and 13, until we reach the full unity of faith, verse 15 and 16. Instead, speaking the truth of love, we will grow up in every respect to the mature body who is the head, that is Christ. Summary, if you want to be a mature Christian, you have to be in a vibrant church community. It's the only way. You actually have, the church actually asks you to demand something from the people so that their calendars are not at odds with the equipping of God's people. You know, you just can't drop in. You know, if a, a, a real dynamic Christian community tells you, prioritize the community of faith over your career. Prioritize prayer and scripture over your accomplishment. I mean, we, we have adopted such a way of living that, uh, that we have, it, the result is that we are lonely and anxious. And the fruit of that is that this generation is the most lonely and anxious generation in the history of the United States, and their parents have bent their entire childhood to give them everything they want in order to be successful. I was watching the movie Air this week, uh, and the, one of the people or the person who represented Michael Jordan, you know, in his deal with Nike, and uh, he says at one point, I don't have friends, I have clients. And at the end of the movie, he sells his company for $100 million, and the film says he was eating dinner by himself. That, that's the life. Success, $100 million, by yourself in the end. Think of the picture of Ephesians. The, the church is in an audience. It's not pastors on staff and do the work, it, you know, and everyone else just kind of takes uh, what they can get. That, that's consumer mentality. That, that's who we are. We go to church to see what we can get. We, we treat it like we're shopping at a mall. And we, we leave church and say, well, they didn't really have what I want. I mean, have you ever looked at Google reviews for churches? Let me read you a few. <laughs> the worship leader looked like he had just got done mowing the yard. Four stars instead of five because no worship out of the sermon. After the sermon, just got bored quick. The worship was not great. Of course, sometimes they're good. I decided to look up ours yesterday. Some girl named McKenna Carlson gave us five stars. <laughs> That's my daughter if you're visiting. There had been church discipline if that had been four for me. So what is maturity? How do you become mature? What does Paul say? He says the only way to become mature is to be part of a community of faith that is growing in unity. Look again, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Verse 11 and 13, he gave himself apostles, prophets, evangelists to equip his people until we reach what? The unity of faith and the knowledge and we all become mature. Verse 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love, we will grow and become in every respect, a mature body. You know, sometimes when people say, I love my church, what they mean is, I love everyone who's like me. 
Like, they just don't know anyone. And let's be honest, it's easy to be unified with someone you don't know. Oh, yeah, I feel great unity with them. How long have you known them? Three days. You meet a Christian on a plane, you're like, we're so unified. Listen, it's hard to be unified when there's poopy diapers everywhere. It's hard to be unified with people you're in a long-haul relationship with. And so how do you grow in this long-term relationship? Here's the picture. The evangelists are leading people to Christ. The pastors and teachers are equipping. The entire church is using their gifts. And all this comes together and we're maturing. And then here's the last command, verse 15. We will speak the truth in love. This is how we mature together. Absolute honesty with tenderness. You know, we we don't like uh, people tell us the truth because we are uh, insecure that people actually might find out who we really are. And then when they start telling us who we are, we're like, oh, no, you don't like me. There is just this illusion out there that maturing happens outside of the church, but that's actually the opposite. And you might say, actually, Darren, the body of Christ is global and church is everywhere, the body of Christ. You you have fellowship with Christians. Yes, 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 you win. Uh, But Paul's application is always local. It's always with one group. It's always with a group that has pastors and elders, and deacons, and people you're in a relationship with. You know, I floated for a while, and then uh, I was a brand new Christian, and I got invited to speak at a conference, as mistake number one, and on their part. And that morning, Sunday, I read, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so after I preach, I will not be disqualified. Had big quiet time on that. And then three people in the church I was a part of, confronted me on three different sins three days in a row, and none of them had spoken to one another. And I remember the first guy with Ted Rothfuss. Ted comes up to me, palms in the air, asking me questions. The kindest man you've ever met was searing truth right into my heart. It just broke me. 23 years old. Why? Because now I had a community of faith of people who knew me enough that they could tell me the truth and who love me so much. You know, we can't be ourselves fully unless people tell us. We're terrible at self-awareness. I mean, think, before there were mirrors, how did people know what they looked like? They didn't. They could spend their entire life not knowing what they looked like unless someone else told them. That's why you need the body of Christ. Someone else has to speak the truth to you in love, or you're not going to grow up. You're going to be stuck in a poopy diaper. So are you a Christian? Do you believe the seven one statements? One God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father who is overall one spirit. What are your gifts? Don't hold them back. Don't, don't take your ball and go home here. Don't rob me of the chance to grow up and be a deeper and more mature Christian. And do you want to be a more mature Christian? The means are in this room, a church, a body of Christ. Imperfect, they're going to hurt you but they're the people whom God loves and they're your people. Let's pray. Lord, you love your church and we we have a lot of thoughts about the church, a lot of struggles with the church. A lot of people are leaving church because they're hurt by the church. But most people, Lord, you know, they're not leaving church because they uh, are hurt. They're just leaving. And so would you bring your people back into communities of faith so they won't be stuck in infancy, but that they will mature with other people as they 
use their gifts to bless each other, as they um, use words to speak truth to one another. And for anyone in this room, would you bind up uh, wounds today? Wounds the church have inflicted on them? Wounds uh, their families inflicted on them? Would you uh, bind up uh, people who are lost and rescue them? That they may find Christ and find him to be enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.